Well, the story of the Bible is a story, of course, about redemption. It's a story about a creator who loves his creation so much that he redeems us out of our own filth, out of our own brokenness, our own hopelessness and despair. Uh, Contrary to popular belief, it's not a list of do's and don'ts. It's actually much more than that. It's a true story of love and grace and redemption. And it's full of all sorts of colorful characters who do all sorts of crazy things out of their own brokenness and hopelessness and despair. In fact, uh, the world then actually sounds a lot like the world today. Because as I often say, although human culture constantly changes, human nature never changes. At our core, we are the same across generations and cultures. And so the same brokenness and dysfunction that existed in human beings in centuries past still exists in people today. The details of our circumstances may be different. The setting may be different. The culture may be different. But the underlying brokenness that is at the core of our own dysfunction is exactly the same as it always has been across the centuries and generations and cultures from the beginning of humankind. Which means the solution that was needed for those broken lives back then is the same solution that is needed for broken lives now. That's why the Bible is as relevant today as ever, no matter how ancient the stories may be. Because... Humanity's greatest need never, ever, ever, ever changes. People are broken because of sin. And there's only ever been one cure, the love and grace and forgiveness that we find in Jesus Christ alone. And so, although costly, the answer to what ails humanity is not complicated, right? I think religious people and Religious leaders in particular over the centuries have tried their best to make it complicated, but it's, it's not. What Jesus has done for us, as profound as it is, is not complicated. And yet the reason more people don't embrace it is not because they can't understand it. It's because they don't understand why they need it. Okay, most lost people don't know they're lost. Right? The Apostle Paul was a, a murderer persecutor of the church by his own admission yet he wrote but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us surely he was thinking of himself even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ Ephesians 2 4 and 5 the apostle Peter rejected Jesus in a profanity laced denial just before Jesus was crucified later Peter wrote this about himself and us you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers not with perishable things such as silver or gold but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot he was foreknown before the foundation of the world but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you 1 Peter 1, 18 through 20, Jude, the brother of Jesus, who along with the rest of the family before Jesus' death and resurrection, publicly accused him of being insane. They doubted he was actually the son of God. Jude later wrote this to the church. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life and have mercy on those who doubt. Jude 21, 22. Okay, These were all men who were very good at sinning. They were overachievers when it came to doing the wrong 
thing, and yet they embraced the gospel, and although they still made mistakes, there was surely still uh, sin evident in their lives at times through the redeeming work of Christ in their lives. However, they literally went on to change the world for the sake of Christ. Listen, only because of what Jesus did in them. Right? Paul was a powerful, influential leader long before he came to Christ. Peter was a successful businessman long before he came to Christ. Jude seemed to be doing just fine, as far as we can tell, long before he believed in and followed Jesus Christ. All of these men were getting along quite well for themselves, as far as this world was concerned, long before they came to Christ. But listen, we wouldn't even know their names today or anything significant about them if it wasn't for the work of Christ in their lives. In fact, if after coming to Christ, they had tried to continue living their lives as they did before coming to Christ, what kind of impact do you think they would have had on this world? Right? Everything meaningful, everything lasting, everything that truly made an impact on the people around them and generations since was only because they abandoned who they were before Christ, embracing who they now were in Christ. In other words, it wasn't until they traded in their past life, their past identity, even their past achievements for the infinitely superior new life in Christ. It was only then that they discovered their true worth, which is also when they began to discover what they were truly capable of. Yet before any of that could happen, they had to first recognize the fact that they were lost and in need of rescue. And of course, it's no different today. You're never going to discover all that you can be as long as you're still holding on to what you used to be. You hear me? You're never going to discover all that you can be as long as you're still holding on to what you used to be. All right, Following something new always means leaving something else behind. And, and therein lies the problem for a lot of Christians. We want to follow Jesus forward without letting go of what's behind us. We want to follow him, but we want to bring everything we're supposed to leave behind us with us. And the result of that is we get stuck because we're being pulled in two different directions, stuck between the life that was and the life that could be. And so we get bogged down somewhere between the past and progress. But look, as long as you think you can take hold of everything God has put in front of you without letting go of what's behind you, then you have to, uh, you have yet to fully realize just how much you actually need him to do what he's calling you to do. Just ask Paul or Peter or Jude. For that matter, ask Rahab or Esther or Ruth. All people who had every reason in the world based on their past lives to believe they would not be able to go where God was calling them to go until they recognized their desperate need of God and accepted what he was offering them. Which ultimately, of course, they did. And as a result, every one of them did go where God called them to go, accomplishing what they otherwise never could. And when you read about their lives, what you find is once they finally let go of their past lives and fully embraced their new lives in Christ, they not only overcame their past, but they went on to change the world. They went on to change the world for Christ, even though Paul was a murderer. Peter was a liar. 
Jude was a betrayer. Rahab was a prostitute. Esther was an orphan. And Ruth was a destitute pagan widow. So what's your excuse? We don't have one, do we? No, because just as we all have a past without Christ, we all have a future in Christ as long as we embrace our desperate need for him. Which is what Paul's trying to point out to the church in Rome, as we'll see as we continue to work our way through his letter to the Romans. So let's pick the story up where we left off last time and see what Paul, an infamous sinner himself, has to say about our desperate need for a Savior. We'll pick up where we left off at Romans chapter 3, and we'll begin by reading the first eight verses. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, although everyone were a liar, as it is written that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you're judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is un unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. So after explaining in chapter 2 that possession of the law or even physical circumcision cannot save the Jewish people, Paul opens chapter 3 with, then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. In other words, there is great advantage and blessing for the Jewish people, a chief among them being the fact that they alone were given the oracles of God, Paul says, meaning the indescribable gift of his word, the written revelation of God before the time of Jesus on earth. And then later in chapter 9, Paul will expand on this thought where he talks about Israel being given other advantages such as the adoption as God's people and the glory of God and the covenants of God and the giving of the law of God and the service of God and the promises of God and on and on. Yet despite all that blessing, most of the Jewish people had rejected the gospel. They refused to accept the very promises of the Old Testament they claimed to believe in that were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So does that mean that God's faithfulness to them was a waste of time? Well, of course not, Paul says. In the end, everything that God says and does will be justified even through our own unrighteousness. Because if people's actions, if our unrighteousness could prevent God from carrying out his promises, then God would not be a faithful God. And so Paul says he's faithful, even if that means everyone else on earth is a liar. God is still faithful. And then he quotes Psalm 51.4 from the Septuagint specifically. That's the ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is a reference, Psalm 51.4, by the way, to David's sin with Bathsheba. And Paul quotes that passage, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged, to again show God's judgment is justified and in no way nullifies his faithfulness. And then Paul challenges a perversion of his doctrine of justification by faith that was being uh, propagated by some at the time. And why uh, not do evil that good may come? Right? In other words, let's just all sin as much as we can so that God can be glorified even more. There were people teaching that and, and telling others that Paul was teaching that. As Paul says, some people slanderously charge us with saying, and so Paul says their condemnation is just, because clearly that's not what I'm teaching. 
right? In other words, all perfection, all holiness, all reliability is in God. No matter what, he's faithful to maintain his obligations of the covenants with Israel, regardless of what we do or don't do. And therefore, every one of us, by contrast, must be regarded as falling short. And so the faithfulness of God that Paul's talking about means faithfulness in keeping his promises to judge the wicked, by the way, just as much as he means faithfulness to bless those who love him. Okay, Paul's making a grand statement here to the church about the holiness of God. Ultimately, more specifically, because our God is holy, uh, our unfaithfulness must be addressed. Our sin must be judged one way or the other. Otherwise, God cannot claim to be just or faithful or perfect or holy. But because God is holy, righteous, perfect, just, faithful, and true, there must be justice for our injustice. And furthermore, our unrighteousness only serves to further prove his righteousness. So there's nothing we can do to take away from the perfect and pure holiness of God. In fact, all that our sin does is shine a spotlight on how great the chasm truly is between unrighteous sinners and a holy God. And yet as long as you view God in human terms, which most people do, you'll never fully understand your dire need for a God who's perfectly holy. You see, because uh, as flawed human beings, We've accepted that we're all flawed, that we're all broken, all less than perfect, right? And that's right, and that's true. The problem is, that is also how we tend to view God. We would never admit that, of course, but when you look at how most of us live our lives, it becomes painfully obvious that we neither understand the true holy nature of our God, nor our truly desperate need for a God who is truly holy. Because we look at the world and God in it from a human perspective instead of seeing the world from God's perspective, who I think, I think we sometimes forget is not human. God is not human. He's not like us. He is a perfect, holy, divine, uncreated being. And yet viewing the world through a less than perfect humanized version of God is what leads us to ask questions like, hey pastor, how can there be a God when bad things happen to innocent people? That's a question, by the way, I get asked all the time. Well look, God created us with the ability to make choices. Most important among them being the choice to accept him or reject him. And so from the beginning, of course, men and women have chosen to reject God and his will for our lives at every turn. We thumb our noses at him. And then we blame him when things don't go the way we think they should. Listen, we murder millions of completely innocent unborn children just in our country alone. Nearly a million or more sometimes a year. Not God. Us. We sell people into the sex trade. Not God. Us. We sell drugs and sex and abandon truth and righteousness every single day in our country. Not God. Us. And then we get angry, indignant at God when the world doesn't function like we think it should. You understand, none of this is God's fault. 
It's our fault. Sin is a choice. God doesn't make anyone sin, and yet when there are consequences for the sins of men and women, we get mad at God for allowing bad things to happen to us. It makes no sense. He's given us everything we need to live righteously, and yet we blame him when we reap the consequences of our own choices. The fact is, every single bad thing in this world is an indictment against mankind, not God. We have wrecked this world and the people in it. Even though he's promised us over and over and over again that if we live according to his word, we will be blessed immeasurably. And listen, he's always faithful to do what he says he will do. The problem is, we aren't. And thus, the great chasm that our sin has created between us and him. God is always faithful because he's perfectly holy. A.W. Tozer says, we know nothing like the divine holiness. It stands apart, unique, unapproachable, incomprehensible, and unattainable. The natural man is blind to it. He may fear God's power and admire his wisdom, but his holiness he cannot even imagine. Let's keep reading, verses 9 through 20. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law uh, becomes knowledge of sin. Paul was a, a Jewish man by birth and by heritage. And so when he says, are we Jews any better off? He's very much including himself in that statement. He's saying that by nature, the Jewish person is no more right with God than the pagan or the moralist that Paul addresses in the previous chapters that we've already talked about. In other words, whether you're a pagan, a highly moral good person, or a very religious one, we are all. Every one of us under sin and condemnation without Christ. No one gets a free pass. That phrase under sin, by the way, in the ancient Greek literally means we're sold under sin. In other words, we're slaves to sin. And then just to drive the point home, Paul quotes Psalm 5, Psalm 10, 14, 36, and 140, and also Isaiah 59, all Old Testament scripture that his Jewish readers would be unable to refute. And so through a shocking description, uh, man's horrific sinfulness is not only revealed through the law, but it is intended to describe those under the law for the purpose of highlighting the universal guilt of all mankind, including the Jews. Right? Because in Paul's day, the Jewish people had a habit of taking every Old Testament passage of Scripture that described evil and applying it only to the Gentiles never to themselves. And so Paul clears that up promptly by saying, uh, listen, the law cannot save us Jews. In fact, it cannot save anyone. It may be useful in giving us the knowledge, the understanding of sin, but it cannot save us. 
17th century English Bible scholar Matthew Poole, commenting on this passage of Scripture, said, Lest any should think that uh, law hereupon is useless, he goes on to show its use, but a quite contrary one to what they intended. Okay, in other words, Paul said, yeah, there's usefulness in the law, but it's not what you think it is. It's not going to save you. It just reveals your brokenness and sin. Without a doubt, this is, this is one of the bleaker passages in all of biblical scripture about the state of humanity, including the religious among us. Keep in mind, Paul was writing this to the church, and it was meant to be a sobering statement on the hopelessness of man without Christ. Until we recognize our desperate and utter need for a faithful, righteous, perfectly holy Savior, we are without a hope in this world. In fact, we're without a hope for tomorrow. Just look at the state of the world today. The depravity, the corruption, the, the abuse of leadership, the rejection of God's perfect will. And that's just in the church. According to Paul, look, Jesus is not going to be a part of your life if he cannot rule over all of your life. Why? Because he's not interested in part of you. He wants all of you, and nothing less than that will do. Listen, God didn't plan your life long before you were born and then form you in your mother's womb and then send his son to die for you so that he could satisfy some portion of your life. But a lot of people treat him that way as a provider or healer or protector or friend without ever recognizing him as their Lord. Without ever truly knowing him for who he actually is. In fact, when he describes that final judgment day in the gospel according to Matthew, he leaves no middle ground when it comes to the lordship of Christ in your life. Either you're completely under his rule or you have completely rejected his rule. There's no middle ground even for the most religious among us, the most moral, most spiritual people among us. Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven on that day many will say to me Lord Lord did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name and then I will declare to them I never knew you depart from me you workers of lawlessness Matthew 7 21 through 23 it keeps me up at night that we would think we're okay with God that we're serving Christ and he doesn't even know us. I never knew you. You see, what Jesus wants more than anything is to know you. He wants you to know him as Lord. And of course, it's not so much that people don't want to know Jesus. We just want to know him on our own terms. We want to know Jesus as a part of our lives more than we want him ruling over all of our lives. Often, I think we're more interested in what he can do than we are in who he is. I mean, if you just ask someone who's a believer, a Christian, who is Jesus to you, you'll often hear answers along the lines of, well, Jesus is my friend. Jesus is my provider. Jesus is my healer. He's my savior. He's my protector. Jesus is the one who gives me peace. And of course, uh, we all want that Jesus, which is not wrong, by the way. But notice every one of those descriptions focuses on what he does rather than who he is. 
What you won't hear nearly as often when you ask a Christian the question, who is Jesus to you? You won't very often hear someone say, Jesus is my master. He is my Lord. Who did Jesus say would enter the kingdom of heaven? The one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. In other words, the one who is under the Lordship of Christ. Why? Because doing the will of the Father is a function of actually knowing Jesus. It's not what gets you into heaven. It's proof in your life that you know, you know and are known by the only one who can get you into heaven. That doesn't mean, by the way, you'll be a perfect Christian. But it does mean there will be no part of your life that is off limits to him, even the broken parts. You give him full access. It's not hidden away. You're trying to hold it back and secret a part that you keep away from him. No, we'll all always have brokenness in our lives, this side of heaven. But you have to give him access to it if he's going to have lordship in your life. It's submitting all of your life under his rule, right? To say that Jesus is my peace, my protection, my strength, my provider, those descriptions are all wonderful, but they say nothing of our own lives in relationship to him other than the fact that he does great things for us. Yet when you say Jesus is my Lord, well, then you're announcing to the world that your life is submitted to his because of who he is not just because of what he does for you. So yes, it's important to recognize all that he does, but how much more important that we recognize who he is, which is why uh, when Jesus returns to this earth, there's only one name that the Bible says will be written on his thigh, according to Revelation 19. And it isn't peace giver or healer or protector or provider or friend. No, there's only one name that is inscribed on his own body and that is the name King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Why? Because that's who Jesus is. So important that we recognize not just what he does but who he actually is. It's what the church was missing in Rome when Paul wrote this letter and it's much of what the church is missing today. Not just what Jesus does but who Jesus actually is. Because once you understand that he is a faithful, righteous, just, perfect, holy, uncreated, divine being through whom all things were created and owe their very existence to, well, it's only then that you can begin to recognize your hopelessly desperate need to bridge the unspannable chasm between you and God. You can't do it without Jesus. Again, A.W. Tozer writes, The moral shock suffered by us through our mighty break with the high will of heaven has left us all with a permanent trauma affecting every part of our nature. We are broken without Jesus. You see, there is no hope. None whatsoever. Not only for all of eternity, but for the rest of this day without Jesus. No hope, which is what leads Paul to the last portion of this chapter. Let's read it together. Verse 21 to the end. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift 
through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he'd passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one. Who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith? Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. It's a masterpiece. Paul's writing about what Jesus has done for us. Right after laying out in painful detail the depressingly bleak outlook, the, the sheer hopelessness of mankind separated from God, Paul opens this last part of the chapter with one of the most hopeful phrases he could possibly utter. But now... Those two simple words proved to be the most glorious, most hopeful transition from the judgment of Romans 3.20 to the justification of Romans 3.21 and 22. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. You see, the law cannot save us. In fact, there's only one righteousness that can save us, a righteousness apart from the law, apart from our own earning or deserving or our own merits. In the words of David Gusick, God's righteousness is not offered to us as something to take up the slack between our ability to keep the law and God's perfect standard. In other words, God's righteousness is not given to us as a supplement to our own righteousness. No, it's given completely apart as Paul says, from our own efforts at being righteous. And how does Paul say this righteousness that we clearly cannot obtain on our own merit or by our own effort? How can it ever be communicated to mankind? Through faith in Jesus Christ. For who? For all who believe. And so the righteousness of God is not ours by faith. It is through faith in Jesus Christ. The faith that we have through him, through his work, not ours. Best of all, it's for all who believe. Which means regardless of your background, upbringing, past life, or present struggles, this gift of salvation by unmerited grace through faith applies to all who would ever receive it. English theologian C.F.D. Moole, referring to God's unmerited gift of grace, said the harlot, the liar, the murderer are short of it. But so are you. Perhaps they stand at the bottom of a mine and you on the crest of an alp, but you are as little able to touch the stars as they. When it comes to sin, all are guilty. No exceptions. Guilty down to the last man. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, yet when it comes to the remedy for our sin, all are offered redemption. Not everyone will accept it, of course, but remember, he said, for all who believe through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. We're going to talk about that next week. 
The ancient Greek word for propitiation, hilasterion, it's used in the Septuagint for the mercy seat. The lid that covered the Ark of the Covenant upon which the sacrificial blood was sprinkled as an atonement for sin. Okay, inside the Ark of the Covenant was the evidence of man's great sin. The tablets of the law, the manna received ungratefully, the budded rod of Aaron showing man's rejection of God's leadership. And yet up over the Ark of the Covenant were the symbols of God's holy presence of the enthroned God in the beautiful gold cherubim. And yet between the two, the representation of sinful mankind and the representation of a holy God, between those two, stood the mercy seat. And as sacrificial blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat on the day of atonement as described in Leviticus 16, God's wrath was averted because of a substitute that had been slain on behalf of sinners coming to the mercy seat by faith. It's a profound foreshadowing of the redeeming work of Christ Jesus, our mercy seat, spanning the unspannable chasm between otherwise hopelessly guilty sinners and the perfect holiness of God. When you receive that free gift, you've been claimed by Christ. To be clear, that is a legal claim. The Apostle Paul explains it later in this letter. He says, the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Romans 8, 2 through 4. Jesus paid for something that you never could. Your sin and the price of death that must be paid for that sin. He paid it for you. And in doing so, he made a legal claim on your life. And it wasn't because of what you own or earn or have to offer him. No, he made that claim on your life solely because he loves you. All of the indebtedness of your sin has been paid in full. Do you understand what that means? You no longer have to pay that debt. So why are some of you still trying to pay for something that has already been paid for? Listen, if you're a Christian, if your life truly abides in Christ, then every sin you've ever committed has been paid for. What about the sins you're struggling with right now? Paid for. What about every sin you're ever going to commit? Paid for. You get it. God never wanted you to bear the weight of the effects of sin in this world. And yet there are Christians today still trying to bear that weight in their own lives. As sons and daughters, we were chosen before the foundations of the earth to become fellow heirs with Christ, according to the Apostle Paul in Romans 8, 17. To be a chosen race, according to the Apostle Peter, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, 1 Peter 2, 9. We were never meant to carry the weight of sin in this world, and yet it's a weight that so many people, I'm talking about Christians, refuse to let go of. So they carry it around in their lives every day. Listen to me, God never wanted you to carry that. So he made a legal claim on your life so you wouldn't have to. 
Yet because mankind rejected him all the way back in the Garden of Eden, the burden of sin was thrust upon this world, which is now a broken place full of spiritually dead people. Because of sin, the Apostle John said, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. 1 John 5, 19, Paul said, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all lived uh, in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. The world is a broken place full of spiritually dead people. But Jesus came to change that. That's why he said the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Luke 19, 10. So now within this world, this Broken place full of spiritually dead people. You have the church, which is a family made up of people who were once spiritually dead, but are now spiritually alive in Christ. And if you keep reading that passage in Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5 says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. He bore our sins, so we no longer have to. That's why he was able to say, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I'm gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 through 30. He bore our sin so that we no longer have to. Listen, so that we no longer have to. God never wanted you to carry the burden of sin and now because of Jesus Christ, you don't have to. So why, Christian, I'm asking you, why are some of you still carrying that burden when it's not yours to carry? Why do you allow your own brokenness to shackle you to the point that you, you don't believe you can become the man or woman he created you to be? Listen, I'm, I'm not talking about <clears throat> pretending that our sin doesn't matter. Of course, it does. Jesus died for our sins, but he also lived to show us what life looks like without sin as an example for us to live by. He's a holy God who commands us to be holy. Our sin grieves the Holy Spirit, according to Ephesians 4. It creates distance between us and God, according to Isaiah 59. And so, yes, absolutely, we should feel great conviction when we sin and repent every single time. And in that moment, the closeness of our relationship with him is fully restored, not because of the inherent value in our repentance but because of the inherent value in the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed on the cross where he made a claim on your life canceling out the debt of your sin forever so why are you still struggling with that weight well I'll tell you why ultimately it's pride when we give more credit to our sin than we do to his sacrifice that paid for our sin. That's actually a form of pride because we're giving greater weight to what we've done than we are to what he's done. Because we don't fully recognize who it is we serve. The only one who could ever do what he did, spanning the unspannable chasm between us and God. It's nothing more than pride. And as Peter points out, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties 
All the weight of your sin, all that burden that you continue to carry, you cast it all on him. Why? Because he cares for you. He loves you, 1 Peter 5, 5 through 7. Do you understand? We're commanded to cast all of our anxieties, all of our cares, all of our burdens, the weight of every sin on him. And it's not a suggestion. It is a command of God. And anything short of that, according to Peter, is nothing more than pride. So if you're holding the weight of sin in your life today, if you're holding on to some kind of weight, especially if it's keeping you from going where God has called you to go in your life, Peter says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and the hand of the only one who can actually do something about it and then cast those burdens on him because they're not yours to carry anymore. Because you're not your own. You were bought with a price. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, he made a legal claim on your life. You see, Paul's pointing out in this letter that Jesus has spanned the unspannable chasm between us and God. And so repent of your sin. Cast all of that weight upon the one who paid for that sin and then get on with the calling that he's placed on your life. You don't have to carry that weight anymore. You don't have to carry it out of this building. The words of the English songwriter Stuart Townsend, no guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. This entire letter, in fact, this entire book is a story about redemption. It's a story about a holy God hopelessly separated from his own people because of our sin. And so recognizing our desperate need for a savior, he sent Jesus to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. The key for us is we need to recognize our desperate need for him. Because you're never going to discover all that you can be as long as you're still holding on to what you used to be. And listen, no matter where you're coming from, No matter how bad it looks, no matter the state your life is in right now, the offer is the same as it always has been. Remember, Paul was a murderer. Peter was a liar. Jude was a betrayer. Rahab was a prostitute. Esther was an orphan. And Ruth was a destitute pagan widow. And yet every one of them was not only redeemed from all of that, but they went on to change the world. And so can you. And it all starts by simply recognizing and admitting your own desperate need for a Savior. Let's pray.